Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that, as the psalmist says, you command the dawn and each day brings your mercy and your promise to renew us in Jesus so that we are transformed day by day, glory by glory, Paul says, into the image of Christ. And we want to reflect him rightly. So part of that is studying your word and understanding it. And we pray for your wisdom, that your spirit would be with us, opening our hearts and our minds, not only um, as we discuss our passage in this class, but also as we go into the service and hear the preaching of your word, that our Hearts and our spirits would be uh, receptive to the work of your Holy Spirit in us. And so as we begin uh, this next section, would you make us willing in the day of your power to be transformed again and again in the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 22. And last time, uh, we heard Paul's speech to the Jewish mob that had just beaten him half to death. It's always a good intro. <laughs> Let's get some context. What was, what was going on here? What was the scene? Why was he there? What, what, uh, what was the issue that they had with Paul? Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, and the, <clears throat> Jew, the, the Jews weren't liking that, and so the... Christian Jews were trying to get Paul to go to the temple and participate in the uh, one of the, I can't remember exactly what sacrifice like the Nazarite vow things yeah the vow um, to help bridge the gap of saying Paul's still a Jew he's not saying if you're a Jew don't be a Jew but you know trying to help smooth over the relations there and it didn't work yeah it it did not work. Uh, so you've got uh, Paul coming into Jerusalem, and at this time in history, remember we talked uh, about it that 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 the nationalism, Jewish nationalism, was was at was was a growing um, boiling pot there, especially in in Jerusalem, and it ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. We're in about mid fifties here, so you got another fifteen years left. But it's again in, in an increasingly hostile environment for Gentiles. Uh, and so Paul walks into Jerusalem with this law-free gospel to the Gentiles. And they are uh, Jews from Ephesus, or Asia, we, we, we uh, assume, are telling those in Jerusalem that Paul is disloyal. He's a traitor to the Jews. Uh, he's calling them to, uh, those outside of, of Judea, to not circumcise their children, which is, I mean, that's their covenant duty before God to do that as, a, as the sons of Abraham. And they're saying that he's telling them that they don't have to obey the law, that God's favor can fall on them. If they're, to forsake their Jewishness is basically what they're, what they're claiming he's doing. Um, so the core issue here that we see with Paul and the Jews in Jerusalem is, are you with us or are you with them? Are you a Jew or are you with our enemies, right? Uh, are you a citizen of Jerusalem or a citizen of Rome? And what's Paul's answer? Yes and neither, right? Do you remember in Joshua, whenever he, the, they fit the Battle of Jericho? And the, he's right before that battle. He goes out in the desert, he's praying, and, 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 and a, an angel of, the angel of the Lord appears and Joshua approaches this angel 
who we know as the pre-incarnate Christ. He's, he's, he's looking at the angel and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? What's the response? Neither. But go march. Right? The, there is an identity here with the Jews, our identity as sons of Abraham. And we're going to see here there's an identity with the, with the tribune and the soldiers as Romans. That's in play in this, in this section. And, I, and I, I love the way this works out. I think it's very appropriate for us in our current history and our nation. Who do you identify with? What, and and, when, and how, how do we respond when that's challenged? Right. So, all right. So we have we have uh, chapter 22. We're going to start in verse uh, 22. He gives a speech right to the Jews. He gets arrested by he gets beaten half to death. The, the tribune comes, puts him in chains, take him to the barracks to get him safe. Paul says, can I speak to the mob? And how did in what language does he do that in, by the way? Hebrew. To, he speaks to the mob in Hebrew. How does he speak to the tribune? Greek. Greek, very polished Greek. So the Tribune gets a little shocker there. And then he speaks to the mob in Hebrew. Uh, and, and he gets to the word, you know, Jesus telling him in the temple, You're, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And they love that word. Right? So verse 22. Up to this word, they listen to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Always a good idea. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound, that he had him, that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. All right, now we'll stop there. So at the very mention of the word Gentile, the mob mentality resumes. And some have argued that Paul should have known better than to mention Gentiles at this juncture, you know. Let's stay with the, hey, I'm a good Jew theme. Uh, but uh, it was his openness to the Gentiles that got him in trouble in the first place. And you got to deal with it. That's what the issue is. So there's a loyalty issue here with the mob. You're fraternizing with the enemy with this gospel to the Gentiles. So what does Luke record of their response to this? What is the response what, if you were standing there watching this happen, what are we seeing the mob do? He's not fit to live. Okay, so they're chanting, he's not fit to live. Erase his memory from the annals of the earth, basically. Away with such a one. What else are they doing? So there's a screaming going on. Let's kill him. 
throwing off their robes and throwing dust into the air. What is going on with that? Well, Picture that. The, I mean, we're mad, so hey, <laughs> what is up with that? Why are they taking off their robes and why are they flinging dust in the air? Didn't, um, with, when, before Paul was Paul, when he was Saul, uh, at the stoning of Stephen, wasn't he the one holding cloaks? That's right. That's right. That is one theory. That they were uh, getting to the point where they're going to stone Paul. That's one theory. What's another, what's another possibility here? Uh, is it? Tearing of clothes generally symbolizes blasphemy, so it's kind of... Kind of like tearing clothes in response to a blasphemous statement. Was there a blasphemous statement made here? He said that God had said to do something. He said God told him in the temple to go to the Gentiles. And that's blasphemy, is it? Well, if God didn't say that, it's him putting words in God's Okay, mouth. that's a good point. That's a good point. The statement itself... God saying, go to the Gentiles. Is that blasphemous? Who are the Jews supposed to be? A light to the Gentiles. So it's not inconsistent with God, even you know, what we know in the Old Testament, to go to the Gentiles. That's not a statement that's false, that, that attributing a false statement to his mouth. It's whether or not he heard it, right? That would be blasphemy if you claim that God said something he didn't say it. Okay, so there's some of that. Really, when it comes down to it, we don't know what they're doing here. There's some theories. Those are good theories. But we don't know. Some have just said they were just crazy. They were looking for rocks. All they could find was dirt. And, and exactly. <laughs> exactly. Some have said there's no, there's no rocks in the temple compound, so we're just going to throw dirt at him. <laughs> I, I mean, if you look at this scene, it's crazy town. They're absolutely incensed by this guy, and they're acting like raging animals here. They're waving their cloaks. They're rip, and they're throwing dirt everywhere. And everybody's like, "Okay, that's enough with the dirt." You know, what? It's crazy town. Oh, but we are so superior mm -hmm. to Gentiles. God has chosen us. We're so superior to all of these pagans around us, and yet look what they're reduced to in response to the gospel. Why would they react this way? What drives that? When you start touching and challenging people's identity of themselves, how they view themselves, what they're entitled to, it doesn't it ceases to become a rational argument. And that's what I love that scripture does this. It shows us, the Holy Spirit shows us where our personalities, where our character, what our responses are to being challenged at cherished assumptions, cherished identities, and you see them just reduced to wild, crazy animals here. All right. In general, people do not handle it well when you contradict how they perceive their identity. So here Paul is making the argument that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is giving his steadfast love to people other than Jews. And so in their minds, God is, uh, Paul is arguing that God is breaking his covenant with them to go to the Gentiles, their enemies. It's a huge deal. Isn't that the thread of thought that Paul addresses in Romans 9? 
It's not as though the Word of God has failed, right? That's the whole fundamental thing that drives 9 through 11 is, what do you do with God's promise to the Jewish people? It's not as though the Word of God has failed. Well, this crowd isn't much for reading Paul in Romans. And so the Roman Tribune has him pulled back to the barracks for safety. Out of the frying pan. What does Luke record next? They're going to examine him. They're going to examine. They're going to do a little enhanced interrogation. <laughs> For real, right? This is serious enhanced interrogation. Uh, so, what language has Paul been talking to the crowd? Hebrew. 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 Do you think the Romans understand Hebrew? Have they had Hebrew school? No. no. So they're hearing Paul talk, and it's like being in an elevator with two foreigners. You <laughs> got nothing, you know. And they're talking. And someone gets mad at the other. You don't know what's going on. It's like, okay, what's going on? This, this is what they're saying, except it's not a friendly conversation. This is a rabid mob who's doing some weird things with their cloaks and throwing dirt in the air. He doesn't know what's going on. He can't tell what's going on with the language that's being used because he doesn't speak Aramaic. He doesn't speak this Hebrew dialect at all. Um, the Tribune has been wrong about Paul from the start, hasn't he? What do you think he who do you think he was at the beginning? Do you remember? The Egyptian this Egyptian insurrectionist that Luke mentions, and we talked about that a little bit last time, the history behind that. He was wrong there. That was one shocker. Oh, you're not the Egyptian. What is the other shocker? Oh, you're a Roman. We're getting there. You can speak Greek. You can speak Greek, and not just Greek, well, not slang Greek, Polish Greek. Greek. Right? So this Jew in this God-forsaken country that I'm assigned to can speak Really polished Greek. He's an educated man. And he's a citizen of Tarsus, which is no small city, right? You have this, this shock that happens to the assumptions of the Tribune about who this guy is again and again and again. Um, and he's in for one more, as we'll get to in a second. So the Tribune then exercises a little of his identity as a Roman soldier. Uh, if you have no idea what's going on and, uh, and you have someone who's not formally charged with anything because nobody knows what's going on, it, the best way to get information from them is to do some in, enhanced interrogation. I mean, that just makes sense, right? So you have uh, the method that the Romans used for this against slaves and commoners was in Latin called flagellum. And what this involved was uh, a, what? Stop it. No, not flagellation. That's not what I'm saying. Flagellum. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whip that has leather strips, and it's embedded with bone and stone, and not the dirt from the courtyard, but the bone and the stone and metal, right? And so this is pretty brutal. Paul's been flogged before, but with rods, remember? This is much more severe than that. Jesus was subjected to this, and it's, people don't survive this many times, do not survive this. So, um, so you have here uh, Paul being set up to be flogged with, I don't know if it's cat and nine tails or whatever, I don't know exactly the instrument was used, but it's a similar situation. Okay, so what does Paul not do here? He doesn't take it. Right? 
He doesn't have a martyr complex. He doesn't say, oh, I'll be made more holy. Please open up my back. He doesn't say that. You've heard Philip talk about second century guys who like sought martyrdom. Paul is not of that crowd. <laughs> he doesn't want to go through this unnecessarily. He's not going to go through torture unnecessarily. So how does he... This is... I love the way he does this, though. How does he address this issue? What does he do? He questions the legality of He it. asks a question. He doesn't say, I'm a Roman citizen. Stop. You're sitting there stretched out about to be beaten, and you start screaming, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm a Roman citizen. What is the natural response going to be? Yeah, right. Sure. Right? What does he do? Calmly, I assume. We, I'm not told he screamed it. We, I'm sure there was a little anxiousness in his voice. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? What does that do? He also asks the specific person instead of crowd. When you ask the crowd, right. no one cares. No one's going to answer. No one has to answer. But That's when you right. Ask the person, they're responsible for answering. So he, call, he looks to the centurion that's there in charge of the flogging. Well, is it lawful? Who's going to be held accountable if yeah. this is true and he flogs a Roman citizen, he's going to be punished. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. He puts the onus of the state on, on this guy, this centurion. Uh, it's a simple question. This is actually a very big issue. Uh, it was unthinkable at this time to even bind a Roman citizen who was uncondemned. Uh, there's a famous quote by Cicero, uh, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder. <laughs> I don't know how to make sense of that other than to say, yeah, it's a bad thing to flog a guy who's a Roman citizen uncondemned. Almost an act of murder. All right, Roman citizens were only subject to scourging when they were actually convicted of a crime. To do so otherwise was illegal under Roman law with very serious consequences. So what does the centurion do with this question? He goes and double checks the facts. What's the answer, by the way? Is it lawful? No. No, it's not. So what does he do, the centurion? He runs back to the tribune. The burden's on him. Let's seek, let's seek to offload the burden... Onto my superior, right? So he goes to the tribune. What does he say? Hey. He does what? He asks him the same question. What are you about to do? What are you doing? What does he? What does the tribune? How does the tribune respond to this? What does he say? I mean, what's got to be going on through this guy's head? I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Make it stop. Every turn, every assumption he has about Paul is being turned on its head. He's not the Egyptian insurrectionist. He's not even Egyptian. He's actually a Roman citizen. He's, he's claiming to be a Roman citizen now. This Jew is out of nowhere... This educated Jew. This educated Jew out of nowhere is claiming to be a Roman citizen. And what's a big deal about that to the tribune? Why, did, why is that a big deal to him? I paid a big price for this. Now, Roman citizenship at that time, if you, it, it, unless you're born into it, you could get it through um, service to the state, military service, they would grant it. Uh, if a slave served their master well and they were freed, they would grant them 
Roman citizenship is a legal process to do that. If towns were turned into colonies, if they were granted colony status, the entire town was made, uh, was given citizenship. Toward the latter part of the empire, uh, under Claudius, they actually started selling it. It's like an indulgence for Romans. It's, it kind of carries through. Um, they started selling it, and it was a huge amount of money to do it. But it was always thought to be a lesser valued citizenship than birth. They proved that, in a way. How, how was Paul born into Roman citizenship? Nobody knows. It's been, it's been the subject of a lot of debate. Nobody knows. It could have been that they served the state by making tents for the soldiers or something like that. They could have been part of a colony at one time that would travel, you know, that, that they were granted citizenship. His dad granted citizenship the somehow. wasn't a Roman colony? I, I don't know. I don't know. It was a. It was a considered to be. I mean, they they were impressed with his citizenship of Tarsus. That may be the way that it happened. We just we don't have any com confirmation of what actually took place for him to get citizenship by birth. But whatever the reason, it it's not challenged. What's the Tribune's response? How does he? I had to pay for mine. Now, when he says that, a lot of scholars think they hear sarcasm, mm -hmm. like. Boy, this stuff is going for cheap now. What's the deal? Even this guy. What's Paul's response? I got it by birth. So what in status, suddenly this backwoods Jew who's been beaten by a mob, so he must have, been, must have done something wrong, is suddenly in social status greater than the tribune. Shocker number four. The assumptions that he had about this other have been turned on their head, right? It's not just an afterthought, Roman citizenship. He got his by birth. Um, all right. Nobody knows how his family came to citizenship status, but that's really not the point. In the, in the scheme of things, Paul's status as a Roman citizen by birth was greater than the tribune's by purchase, and the tribune has put him in chains and stretched him out for scourging. That's a big deal. What happens? The scene goes full stop, right? And Luke records Lysias' response to this new information, this fourth shocker with Paul. What is it? Whatever. <laughs> okay. No, he's scared to death. He's in great fear over what he's done to Paul. Put him in chains down around the mob and now stretched him out for scourging. It's a big deal. And from this point on, Lysias treats Paul with great respect. And we'll see that as we go through Acts, as long as Lysias is with him. It's really interesting to me, it's fascinating to me, this interplay in this passage with cherished identities and assumptions about the other. The assumptions of the Jews to the Gentiles, the assumptions of the Romans, of this Jew, and how their, um, their, their idols of who they are are challenged. The Jews idolized their identities as sons of Abraham and this feeling of superiority before God 
over the Gentiles. And the Romans idolized their citizenship and the rights that it gave them under the laws that they imposed on everyone around them. The Jewish mob at the temple is reduced to raving lunatics, uh, clearly displaying their superiority over everyone else. The prideful and violent Roman tribune is reduced to being fearful when a Jew from Tarsus is more of a Roman citizen than he is. That's a, those are big deals for them, for those people back then. Put aside, the, put aside this idea that the problem is those people for a second. Put aside the political notion there. How do we respond when our cherished identities are challenged by the gospel? How do we respond to that? Um, I'm entitled to X because I am this. And when it's shown in the gospel that we're not entitled to be that way, we're not entitled to this, what is our response to that? I haven't really, I don't have any preconceived notions of this question I'm about to ask you, but I want you to help me think through. What are some cherished notions? What are some cherished identities that we have um, in the South, in Merca? What, what are some cherished identities that we have that are challenged by the gospel? Can you think of any? In what um, way? In us, it's a freedom through Christ. Through, okay. One aspect, we're so awesome, we got our freedom, we earned it, and then on the other hand, it's like we're absolutely nothing, and we're just gracious that God has you know, allowed us to be free. And what is freedom? The definitions yeah. of freedom. I Not think that, I think what we want, just want to do. I right. do my own thing, be who I want to be, I can follow my heart, but for like, I'm free so that I don't have to be the person I was and that I don't have to be enslaved to my sin and that I'm able to serve Christ and that I'm able to maybe put others first sometimes and try to, you know, right. act freedom, in freedom. Freedom to do what we are. Yeah. I've heard that somewhere recently. I, the ability to do what you are. The ability, not only the freedom to the freedom and the ability. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's this, this definition of freedom that we cling to shaking off the bonds of whatever social constraints I have and doing what I want to do, which inevitably leads to stronger chains than the boundaries that we have. Versus Christ who for freedom has made us free to no longer be in the yoke of bondage, Paul says, no longer in the yoke of sin, doing what, following our raging animal instinct that you see here. I think that's kind of trickled down. Or, I don't know if you want to use that word. But that Tr trickled down. we kind of have the idea that there's nobody controls us. So like there's no such thing as law or anything. Mm -hmm. So like um, the laws that are to be followed that are put in place by the government, we're thinking, well, who, who are they to tell me? I'm, I'm somebody, so I don't have to do that. Yeah. The... the um, I read an article this week about the, the new feminism and the uh, crazy town 
regulations that they're trying to put in place about when yes means yes and no means no versus you have clear consent when you say I do. There's no, there's no, there's a hard bright line. But before that, now we have all this freedom and this, all this uncertainty of what is appropriate um, sexual activity and all this kind of, and, and what's the, but in, in the, in the, the understanding of, I don't want to say Christianity, but although that is a, leads into this, but just the understanding of what is it to, to be a man and be chivalrous, to be res, a respecter of women, and, and all of that has gone out the door in today's culture because we're free. Yeah. So we never know. When yes means yes and no means no, right? So we've traded a law, sex after marriage, with freedom where now nobody knows if anybody, what the rules are anymore. I guess it's yes if they liked it and it's no if they didn't. And so now everybody's like, what? That's a very core issue in our culture right now. What, what are the rules anymore? And yet we traded certainty, biblical certainty, for chaos. And isn't that the way of it? If nobody believes that we were created by God, and God, since He created us, He knows how nature operates, so He's given us rules to follow, and then whenever we break down those barriers without knowing why they were put in place in the first place, like all the, the, the sexual revolution then it just makes a mess of things, and then you start to wonder, like, well, how did we get here? But nobody, nobody's allowed to ask those questions because we're free. <laughs> right. I've had that conversation. You're, you're not free to ask the question. It's like, how dare you? Yeah. I, no, you're, you're perfectly but then, but then there's a lot of articles coming out, even by, like, just extreme, like, left-wing whatever, that talks about the, the how good modesty is and um, monogamous relationships and how healthy they are. Because you don't have all the, the mess that, yeah. that comes along with just Isn't it amazing? There actually are some feminists coming out now that are that are trying to redefine feminism as being feminine. Yeah. As being, as it's actually being feminine? As, as being, <laughs> a, a, and it's more of a tr trying to redefine, it, it's not the traditional idea of that the radical feminist movement, which was to make, uh, to break down a barrier between men and women and make women like men. Mm -hmm. And, it, but there, there, I, I've seen that, I think I saw it on Fox News, but there was a lady who defined herself as a feminist, but her idea was trying to redefine women as women. <laughs> Because now that's a radical thought. <laughs> you know, it really, it really tells you how desperate the culture is when biology is a radical thought. Yeah. It really does. They're coming full circle now. But that's but but we know this already. It was already there. Order was there, and we traded order for chaos. We traded peace. Shalom, order for chaos. That's one area. There's plenty of other areas. What, are, what is, uh, well, maybe we should move on here. It's 10 o'clock.
Here's one question I want us to kind of wrestle with. He's beaten half to death. He's stretched out for flogging. He'll never be out of chains again till the end of the book. Did Jesus love Paul? And don't answer that too quickly. Did Jesus love Paul? Here's a man rejected by his own people, rejected by his own. One, those, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. These are my people. And he's rejected, disowned, beaten by them. That's a pretty extreme form of rejection. This isn't just, a, hey, you don't, you're not welcome at Thanksgiving. His own identity as a Jew is stripped. He'll never be able to go to Jerusalem again. He's in terror of extreme torture. His freedom is stripped. He'll never be able to roam the country freely again. Did Jesus love Paul? Can we say that affirmatively? It's not like Paul went into this not knowing this wasn't going to happen. Okay. That's true. He's told again and again and again. He's been spared the agonizingly slow death of being scourged and then left to rot. Okay. I guess that's a lesser form of pain, suffering, mental anguish. So the question you asked is, does Jesus help Paul? Mm -hmm. But what is Paul doing all this for? Or for what is Paul doing? Okay. (laughs) Nice. Uh, It's Paul seeking after God and doing what is uh, not in his own interest, but God's interest. And so God isn't all about Paul, God's mm-hmm. about all his people. Mm-hmm. And if he needs to use Paul to be able to save however many people, it's not that he doesn't love Paul, he loves everybody. And whatever happens to Paul on that earth, this earth, it's the same earth. It is, <laughs> oddly enough. Bo- biology included. Matter. It's, it's, you know, inconsequential mm-hmm. because kind of what he's given it. It feels very consequential oh, to Paul. Yes. I agree. I mean, Think about that. Stretched out. It's coming. But for a very simple question, it would have happened. It already had. Well, he'll be shipwrecked. We'll see. We'll read about that in a little bit. But did Jesus love Paul? Romans 8, always a good place to go. Just because it's Paul. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What do you mean if God is for us? You're in chains. You're about to be beaten again. What do you mean if God is for us? He who did not spare his own son. Did did God love Jesus? (laughs) He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What things? More beatings? What is he talking about? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, apparently the Jews in the courtyard did, right? It is God who justifies. Was it a legitimate charge by the Jews in the court? No, not by God's standard. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the sword, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we say that? Are we sure of that? Um, the trip that you sent me on uh, in, uh, 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 to the Shepherds Conference earlier this year, I picked up three books by Joe Thorne on the church. And one of them I'm reading now called The Heart of the Church. He has some really interesting things to say about the gospel. Uh, his, his point in, in one section is we cannot look to our circumstances for the assurance of God's love. It's not based on our circumstances. He says this in particular. When we assure ourselves of God's love through what he provides for us, we will then question his love when our needs go unmet. Not being beaten is a need, right? <laughs> and it went unmet for Paul. I'm sure, he says. How do we know God loves us? John tells us this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that $10 word, propitiation. There is a wrath, a justified wrath, under which all mankind is born. We are born to rebel against the Creator. And that includes Paul. Creatures lusting to be the Creator, men claiming to be God, and yet He loved us and loves us. How does He show it? How do we know it? Not by looking at today, but looking back. What did He do? He sent Christ to appease the just wrath. And that's not a matter of vengeance, by the way. It's a matter of justice. We, I deserve hell. There will be no one standing on the precipice of hell looking down saying, I don't deserve this. We all deserve it. In this is love that he sent Christ to appease that just sentence, that just wrath. It required a sacrifice and God made it. God's love is seen best not if He provides a spouse, not if He provides a good job and a, bank full, uh, a full bank account, not if He provides harmony in the home, not if He provides obedient kids, not if He stops war and social injustice. That's not the test of God's love. God's love is seen best in the great exchange. With sinners who trade their sin for Christ's righteousness. That's where his love is shown. 
who trust that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Did God love Paul? Yes. Does God love you? Yes. Are you persuaded? Are you sure? I pray so. I pray that we don't judge God's favor by circumstances. But looking at the cross, we see the love of Christ clearly displayed for us. Let's pray and we'll go forward. What do we do in response to your love? What have you called us to do? You've called us to demonstrate it by loving one another and submitting to one another as unto Christ. The offenses that we take are such small things compared to our offenses against you that you have put under the blood of your own son. Father, would you give us a zeal to display your love in our faithfulness to you by getting to know Jesus better and by loving one another as unto Christ, not based upon how they treat us, but how you've treated us. We pray for all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.